Good morning, brothers and sisters. We extend a warm welcome to everyone who has joined us in church this morning for worship and also those who have joined us remotely via the live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, as well as the administration of baptism to Catherine Maria Brand. Consistory has just one announcement, and that is that the consistory with deacons will meet the Lord willing at 7.30pm tomorrow evening. This morning the worship service will be led firstly by Reverend Poppy and then after baptism by Brother Plater. Before we begin, let us sing together hymn 58, verse 1, 2 and 3. Brothers and sisters, please rise and let's worship the Lord. As God's people, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's now sing together to sing a song of praise, Psalm 150, the verses 1 and 2.
God has given us his law to convict us of our sin and also to teach us how to live a life of gratitude before him. Let's listen to the words of God's law as we find that in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In 2 Samuel 12, we have the story of King David, who is confronted with his sin. He murdered Uriah, and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. God sent the prophet Nathan to David in order to confront him about that sin, and David came to confess that sin to the Lord. David said in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then the Lord, whenever we do that, the Lord grants the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And such is the grace of God. Let us sing together. Let's make a confession of our sins. Let's also remember, also in the form for the uh, baptism of infants, we'll remember the great forgiveness that God offers to us as we acknowledge our sins to him. So let's first sing together from Psalm 6, the verses 1, 3, and 6.
brother and sister Brand have requested baptism for their daughter, Catherine Maria. To that end, let's first read together the form for the baptism of infants. If you want to follow along, you can find that on page 597 of your book of praise. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of holy baptism is summarized as follows. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin, so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our souls, so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God, and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. Second, baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. We are therefore baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he establishes an eternal covenant of grace with us. He adopts us for his children and heirs and promises to provide us with all good and avert all evil or to turn it to our benefit. When we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. When we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this sacrament that he will dwell in us and make us living members of Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives, till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. Third, since every covenant contains two parts, a promise and an obligation, we are through baptism called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. We are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust him and to love him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength. We must not love the world, but put off our old nature and lead a God-fearing life. And if we sometimes, through weakness, fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin, for baptism is a seal and a trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. Although our children don't understand all this, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism. Just as they share without their knowledge in the condemnation of Adam, so are they, without their knowledge, received into grace in Christ. For the Lord spoke to Abraham, the father of all believers, and thus also speaks to us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter also testifies to this when he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Therefore, in the old dispensation, God commanded it that infants be circumcised. The circumcision was a seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. Christ also took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. In the new dispensation, baptism has replaced circumcision. Therefore, infants must be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And as they grow up, 
their parents have the duty to instruct them in these things. In order that we may now celebrate, that we now administer this holy sacrament of God to his glory for our comfort and for the upbuilding of the congregation, let's call upon his holy name. Almighty eternal God, in your righteous judgment, you punish the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood. But in your great mercy, saved and protected the believer Noah and his family. You drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, but led your people Israel through the midst of the sea on dry ground, by which baptism was signified. We therefore pray that you, in your infinite mercy, will graciously look upon this child and incorporate her by your Holy Spirit into your Son, Jesus Christ, so that she may be nurtured, may be buried with him by baptism into death, and raised with him to walk in newness of life. We pray that she, following him day by day, may joyfully bear her cross and cleave to him in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. Grant that she, comforted in you, may leave this life, which is no more than a constant death, and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ, your Son. All this we ask through him, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit, one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. Can I now ask you to please rise? Beloved in Christ the Lord, You've heard that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord our God to seal to us and our children his covenant. We must therefore use this sacrament for that purpose and not out of custom or superstition. That it may be clear then that you desire baptism for the right purpose, you are to answer sincerely the following questions. First, do you confess that our children, though conceived and born in sin, and therefore subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation, are sanctified in Christ? and thus as members of his church ought to be baptized? And second, do you confess that the doctrine of the Old and New Testament, summarized in the confessions, and taught here in this Christian church, is the true and complete doctrine of salvation? And third, do you promise as father and mother to instruct your child in this doctrine as soon as she is able to understand and to have her instructed therein to the utmost of your power? Brother Brand, what is your answer? And Sister Brand, what's your answer? Brothers and sisters, following the baptism, you're invited to rise, and we're going to sing together from Psalm 134, verse 3. Catherine Maria Brand, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Brothers and sisters, let's now call upon the Lord in thanksgiving and prayer. Almighty God and Father, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son, and so adopted us to be your children. You sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. We pray through your beloved Son that you will always govern Catherine by your Holy Spirit, that she may be nurtured in the Christian faith and in godliness, and that she might grow and increase in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that she may thus acknowledge your fatherly goodness and mercy, which you've shown to her and to us all. May she live in all righteousness under our only teacher, king and high priest, Jesus Christ, and valiantly fight against and overcome sin, the devil, and his whole dominion. May she forever praise and magnify you and your son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one only true God. And now, Father, as we draw near to you, and open your word, we wish to pray that you would grant us a rich measure of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you give us your word, and that through your word you reveal to us what kind of a God you are, and you show us what a, a glorious future that you have in store for us. Thank you, Lord, that we could remember here about the promise of the forgiveness of sins, and thank you that along with this promise, you promise us a glorious life in your presence where there will be no more sin. Father, we ask that you would please work in our hearts, that as we hear the preaching of the gospel, that we may love you more and more, that we may understand the glorious future that you have in store for us. Please get us ready for this great day, and please do it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. This morning, we're going to continue our, uh, our journey through 1 Thessalonians. And in connection with our passage this morning, we'll read from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 focuses a lot on the resurrection of the believer and the centrality of the resurrection in the Christian faith. And so we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll read the verses 12 through 28 and then also 50 through to 58. So hear now the word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We, even are, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not rise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things... In subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And then we'll continue our reading in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll read the verses 50 through to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In response to the the reading of God's word, let us now sing Psalm 16, verse 3 and 5.
So our text for this morning is 1 Thessalonians 4, the verses 13 through 18. First Thessalonians 4, this is the word of the Lord. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another, with these words. So far, the reading of God's word. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from hymn 39, verses 1, 3, and 4. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, greatly loved by our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that we experience in our fallen world is separation. Separation from loved ones. And this is something that often can shake us to the core. It has a profound effect on us, something that can have continuing effects in our life. And this is because when we think about it, relationships are not meant to be torn apart or, or, or meant to be severed. Breakups, break divorce, death, or other things that separate us in our relationships with each other, that's not the intention that God had from the beginning for the human relationships. In a way, separation is just another effect of the fall into sin. So if you think Genesis 3... Man is cursed by God. God curses the ground. He curses a serpent. He curses mankind because of Adam and Eve's sin. And then we read in verse 24, God drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So man, mankind, because of the fall into sin, was separated from God. Beforehand, man dwelt with God in this beautiful relationship full of harmony. It's expressed in that phrase where man walked with God in the cool of the day. They experienced great fellowship and intimacy. And then suddenly, because of the fall into sin, that relationship was cut off. It was severed. Man didn't have that same intimacy. They couldn't dwell with God in his presence and in his immediate presence as they had in the Garden of Eden. And so they were separated from God. And then Adam and Eve experienced death. They buried their son Abel. And that's often when separation is its most profound, isn't it? 
Just think of the death of a loved one, someone that you hold very dearly. Maybe it was, maybe it was a spouse. At some point, you fell in love with that person. They, they became your world. You did everything together, then you got married. You had a life together. Maybe you had some children. And then suddenly, they're taken from you. And you stood, as the, you stood by the grave as the casket was lowered down. Or think of maybe the death of a friend. You became friends early on. Maybe you were very close friends. You had sleepovers together. If you look at all your childhood photos, that person is in those photos. And then suddenly, they're gone. Or maybe they came into your world through an ultrasound. And just as quickly as they came into your world, they were out of your world. And they were gone. And so we feel that sting of death. We feel the pain of separation. And it's something that affects us deeply. And you see, this is where the Christian faith is very beautiful and has so much comfort and hope for us. Because we are encouraged that this life isn't all that there is. The glory of Christ's resurrection, it means that we look forward to a glorious resurrection as well. One day, we will be united to those who have died in Christ before us, and together we will be with Christ in all eternity. And this is really what Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians with in our passage. His encouragement to them is that death is not the end. Death is not going to sever us from our relationship with Christ. If you have died before the coming of Christ, you are not somehow disadvantaged. Rather, we will all be united together and we will be with Christ. It's a, it's a truth full of hope and full of comfort, especially in the face of death. Death will not separate us nor will it separate, our, separate those who are in Christ. And therefore, our theme for this morning is death will not separate us. Christ will return and unite all believers to himself. And we'll flesh this out with three things. So first we'll look at how Christ's return gives us hope in our current misery. And then we'll see how Christ's return gives us comfort for our future unity. And then third, encouragement to give our community So the coming of Christ is a major theme in the letter to the Thessalonians. Paul almost mentions it in every chapter. So if you go to chapter 1, verse 10, right at the beginning of the book where he's thanking God for the Thessalonians, for their faith in Christ, for their labor of love, he says right at the end there, he thanks God that they have turned from idols to serve the living God, and then in Uh, Verse 10, he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So already he has a view for the future. He's looking to the return of Christ. And then, if you look at chapter 3, verse 13, Paul, he he speaks to... Sorry, chapter 3, verse 19, Paul speaks to the Thessalonians and he says to them, For what is our hope, our joy... Our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Is it not you? And then, if you look at chapter 4, I mean chapter 3 verse, uh, three, verse 13, you see where he speaks in verse 13. It's a prayer. 
He, said, he prays that God may establish the hearts of the Thessalonians, that God may establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God and, and our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And then here in our passage, he deals with it specifically. And then in the very next chapter, he speaks about how the return of Christ, it spurs us on in our holiness and in our walk with the Lord. And so it's a central theme in the book of Thessalonians. And if you look at the next letter, 2 Thessalonians, you'll see the same theme come back again. And now the reason for this is because it was a central truth that was in the mind of the Thessalonians believers. The Thessalonica was a congregation that lived with great expectancy for the coming day of the Lord. So much so that as we have seen previously in this series, that the Thessalonians actually stopped working because they thought Christ's return was so imminent that while working, was, there was no point. Christ is coming. And so we, don't, we can just wait for him. And so it was something that was in the forefront of their mind. You know, today we often have conferences about mission. Or earlier in our history, we'd have conferences about covenant. Well, the Thessalonians, they would have had conferences about the return of Christ. It was a key, central truth that was formative to them. And yet, that we, what we see is that their understanding of Christ's return it had led to some distress and even uh, hopelessness. They kind of wondered what the return of Christ would mean for their deceased loved ones. We see that in verse 13. So Paul, he informs the Thessalonians, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The Thessalonian believers, they were an afflicted group of people. They had been persecuted quite severely. And so it is highly likely that many of them, because of all these persecutions, had buried their loved ones. And now they were worried that somehow these believers whom they had buried, who, they had, who had died before Christ's return, that somehow they would miss out on the coming of the great day of the Lord. That somehow they would be disadvantaged. And so in their minds, you had to survive to the day to, be part, to partake in the glorious return of Jesus Christ. As you can understand, this filled them with a lot of fear and even despair. Paul writes to inform them because he does not want them to grieve as those who have no hope. So if you think in the world of that day, they, they had hope in the face of death but it was just ideas and philosophies about immortality or or about the life everlasting but in the end it wasn't real hope it was simply wishful thinking that was trying to alleviate the pain of separation and the pain of loss it was really a figment of their imagination but then Paul says that's not the case with you As a Christian, you actually have hope beyond the grave. And it's not just smokes and mirrors. It is real. As real as your Savior who is alive. So is your hope alive. Notice the basis of their hope is verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's a beautiful if-then statement. 
If you believe that this is true, then you can fully believe that that is true. If you believe that Christ has risen from the dead, that he died and rose on the third day, then you can believe this as well. You see, that's the key part of the hope that we have as Christians. That is the foundation of our hope. It is the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. And if you think of Christianity itself, Christianity is nothing without the resurrection. This is what gives our faith content. This is what gives our hope that expectancy because Christ lives. We don't believe in a Messiah who died and then now is buried like other great people. No, we believe in a Messiah who is sitting and he lives and he reigns at the Father's right hand. And that was the gospel that the, that the apostles preached right from the beginning, already in Acts 2. And it continues. For example, Acts 4. They preached about a Christ who rose. Acts 4 verse 33, it says that with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, there's no faith. There's no Christian faith. As Paul writes, as we read together in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then he continues in 19, in, in verse 19 there, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so we would grieve as though we have no hope. But Christ has risen from the dead. He is alive. And so we have hope. As Peter, he's quoting from Psalm 16, if you think right in the, uh, in, at the Pentecost sermon that he preaches, he quotes from Psalm 16, he says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And then he continues and he says this about Christ. Christ has not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus Christ raised Uh, God raised up. He died and God raised him up. And so he says, if you believe in a risen Savior, then you can also believe in your glorious resurrection. You can believe that when Christ returns, you will be raised and you will be united with him in glory. Not just those who survive, not just those who are present when Christ comes, but everybody who has faith in Christ. That glory is sealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's one of our confessions in Lord's Day. Uh, One of the Lord's Day, it says that Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. And this is also the beautiful truth that we are given when we are baptized in the name of the Son. Catherine was baptized in the name of the Son and God promises there that he, that God the Son promises us that he washes us in the blood from all our sins and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. So being washed in the name of the Son means that we partake in his death and in his resurrection. And so since Christ has risen, we will, ris- will rise again. And therefore, death doesn't have the final victory. It doesn't have the final say. It's very interesting, the way that Paul speaks. He says that Christians don't die, they sleep. And that's because Christ died for us. 
It changes death. Death becomes not the end, the dead end, but a gateway into life everlasting. And you see how this radically changes the way we mourn, brothers and sisters. It means that we're not sitting there clinging to some sort of wishful thinking, just a clutch to try to alleviate the difficulty and the pain of seeing our loved one in the grave. No, we don't need, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn, we weep, yes. Even as our Lord Jesus Christ, he wept when he saw Lazarus in the tomb. We grieve their passing because that is not God's intention for this world. But we don't grieve and we don't weep as those who have no hope. You see, it's interesting. Apparently, it's very popular for non-Christians to play at their funeral the song, We Will Meet Again by Vera Lynn, or I'll See You Again by Westlife when the casket is lowered. And so they comfort themselves with the words, We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. And so with that, they cling to something. It's artificial. It's like a band-aid. We will meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. But we will meet again. And so is that the hope that we have when we grieve? We will meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. Well, Paul says, no, not at all. Because you believe in a risen Savior. Your Savior lives. And that is such a beautiful comfort as we continue to experience separation and often the most difficult times of grief isn't necessarily at the funeral of the loved one but it's afterwards because then the cards stop coming the meal train stops people start to continue on with the rest of their lives and then there you are and you're sitting there still grappling with the loss of your dear loved one you're constantly reminded of their absence you're the one who has to sort through their clothes You're the one who sits there and sees that space that is empty where they used to sit in the lounge room all the time. And so when our hearts reel with that pain, Paul says we need not cry in hopelessness. No, there is hope because Christ lives. When we watch the casket being lowered into the grave and when we watch the dirt being pushed back over it, The grave doesn't have the final say because Christ has conquered sin and death in our place. As Paul says, the sting of of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins and therefore we are not subject to death, but rather life because Christ lives. And so this is what Paul gives to the Thessalonians. And we see that the Thessalonians often were thinking about the return of Christ and the resurrection. But one of the things that they struggled to understand was how Christ's return fit with those who had passed away. What was the future for those who had passed before his coming? Would they be separated from other believers? More importantly, would they be separated from Christ? And so Paul comforts them with the the, the future glory of the unity of all believers. And that's what we'll see in our second point. Christ's return gives us comfort from our future unity. 
So to comfort the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, Paul gives a word from the Lord. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he encourages them with a word from the Lord. And this is something that we've seen throughout this series. That Paul is not coming to them with his own ideas. He's not coming to them with his own thoughts on a certain topic. No, he's coming to them with the very words of God. He says there, he speaks as one who has been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. He doesn't speak out of greed. He doesn't speak out of his own, out of his own aims. No, he speaks the words of God. And so here he informs the brothers and sisters with a word from the Lord. And that is what gives us the greatest certainty, isn't it? That's what gives us great surety. It's not because we have some speculations that sort of make sense. No, it's because we have a word from the Lord. And that's what he gives to the Thessalonians. A word from the Lord to, to comfort them and to encourage them. You see, our certainty is not found in the, in the men who wrote the word of God, but in the God who inspired it. And so he encourages them with, with two key truths about Christ's return. So the first truth is that those who have fallen asleep and those who are alive will all be united, with, uh, will all be united together. He says there, we declare to you, we declare to you, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So that word precede, it, it means to, to do something before someone else and so have an advantage over them. It's actually a sporting term. So you can think of a runner, he's running, he overtakes someone, he precedes them, and so he has advantage over them. He is the one who gets the reward. And that idea was, was out there. If you think of some of the Jewish literature at the time, Second Esdras was a, uh, was a work, and it said there, Understand therefore that those who are left are more blessed than those who have died. So if you are alive at the great day of the Lord, then you are more blessed than those who have passed away. And so the believers thought that you had to be alive at the coming of Christ. And that if you weren't, then somehow you would be disadvantaged when Christ came. A congregation, can you understand why, why that would make you worry about your loved ones? Or even worry about yourself? If you had to survive to the coming of Christ, to have certainty, to have hope, then what comfort really is that? It would mean that believers would, who, who have died would be somehow separated from Christ. There would be no victory in death. Imagine living your life with the hope of the future, the hope of eternal life, only for you to sit there, face death, and not have comfort because, well, somehow you missed out because Christ hasn't returned yet. And so that's why Paul informs them. He wants them to know what the real truth of it is. Paul says that's not going to happen. No, no one who dies in the Lord, will miss out on Christ's return. Verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself, that is Jesus Christ, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
So at the appointed time, Christ will come. The the signal will go out from heaven and Jesus will come. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. And then as Jesus himself says in Matthew, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with, with great power and with great glory. And what will happen is those present and those past those who have died and those who are alive at the coming, all of them will be united together. Verse 17, Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air. We will all be together. And so Paul says death is not going to separate the believers in Christ. They're not going to be disadvantaged People who, are, who are, have died in the past will not be disadvantaged at the coming of Christ. Those who, who died in Christ and those who are alive will all be united together. And you see, this is the, another beautiful truth for the household of God. Because it means that we will be united with our loved ones. And the great day of Christ's return... It means that believers from all times and all places will all be taking up, will all be taken up together to meet their Lord. And so we will meet again. We will meet again. And isn't that beautiful? Because that's what helps us as we struggle with separation. You know, we stand at the grave and then we're comforted with the resurrection and then we continue on through life. And that's tough. But then the beauty of the gospel is that 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 separation is not forever. God, he's going to unite all the saints together. And they will see him again. And yet the future glory of Christ's return, it isn't only that we're going to be united with all the believers of all times and places. But notice the greatest joy, the greatest glory of the coming and the, of the return of Christ is that we will be with the Lord. Notice that that's the climax of this whole passage. So he says, for the, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command. And then he says, then in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That is the climax. We're going to be with God. We're going to be with Christ, our Savior. That's the significance of also the clouds, the imagery of the clouds. If you think in the Old Testament, clouds were a symbol of God's presence with his people. It was a cloud that covered Mount Sinai. It was a cloud that filled the tabernacle with the glory of the Lord. It was a cloud that led the people through the wilderness. It was a cloud that covered the disciples when they saw the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And it was a cloud that that blocked the view of the disciples when they saw the ascension of Jesus. You see, one day we will meet the Lord in the clouds. We will be present with Jesus our Savior. And that's the glory. That is the beauty. You see, sometimes when we think of heaven, we can often think of, you know, the the place of heaven. How it's going to be this wonderful place. Maybe it's going to have the best fishing or whatever. You You think of it in those terms. Or we think of it in terms of who we're going to see in heaven. And that's all well and good. 
But the real beauty that the Bible communicates isn't so much the place of heaven, the fact that there is, is a Jerusalem that is paved in gold, but it is the person of heaven, it is Christ. The fact that we will be with him, that we will see him face to face, that is the joy, that is the glory that awaits us. That is the climax here, that we will all together be with our Savior. That is what heaven's all about. That is what Christ's return is all about, bringing us together with him. You see, it's amazing. This was Christ's greatest desire, that he would not be separated physically from his people, but his people would be with him in life everlasting. We see this in John 14, verse 3. He says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. And it was his greatest prayer, John 17, 24. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That was his greatest desire, that we would be present with him. And the way he ensured that future for us is through taking our suffering and being nailed to a cross. You see, we were separated from God, from his presence, because of our sin. And so Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we might be present with him in all eternity and not separated from him. That's the beauty of heaven, that we will be with the lamb who died for us. We'll be with our friend who laid down his life for the one he loves. And we'll be with our Redeemer, who ransomed us from death. You see, it's a, it's a wonderful f- uh, phrase where he says, we will be caught up together. The word means to seize or to snatch away. And it's the same word that is used in John 10, verse 28 to 29, where Jesus says, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Death is not going to snatch us. It's not going to seize us. It's not going to separate us from Christ forever. Rather, God catches up his people, he snatches up his people and takes them to himself so that we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul ends with that final encouragement. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, that's the purpose of the whole discussion of the return of Christ. It's our encouragement that's really important to remember because it's, it's easy for us to get fascinated about the details of the return, the return of Christ, or details of, of what lies in the future. But notice how Paul is not giving us knowledge and giving us information just to tickle our imaginations or to trigger our fascinations about Christ's return. No, the point, he gives us information so that we can be encouraged and so that we can encourage others. He informs them to comfort them. And so our call here is having been encouraged by the future glory of Christ's return that we encourage others with this. And so how do we do that? How can we encourage one another with these words? 
But one of the ways, brothers and sisters, that we can encourage our community of faith is by urging each other to believe in Christ and to walk in intimacy with Him. You see, the word that is used, it speaks of also urging and exhorting one another. And Paul has already used this word in this way in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. Or chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please the Lord, that you continue and do so more and more. And so he says, exhort and urge one another about the return of Christ. And why? Well, one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, is because not everyone who dies will be taken up with Christ. That's the stark reality of the gospel. It's only those who die in Christ who will be raised with Christ that is coming. It's only those who die in Christ who will be with the Lord. And so he urges us, Encourage one another with these things. You see, if we're not in Christ, if you are not living in relationship with Him, then there is no comfort in death, but only fear and terror. And if we reject the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we continue to live in in unrepentance and sin, then the sting of death remains. And many of us here have probably buried a loved one. And the greatest pain in that burial was the fact that they weren't maybe living a relationship with God. And that was a big question mark in your mind. And all you could do in that moment is you just rest in the sovereignty of God. But you see, that's the horror of it. Because the comfort here is that it's only those in Christ... And so that's an implicit warning. And so Paul says, encourage one another. Let us exhort each other, urge each other to live in relationship with our Savior. To walk with our Lord in fellowship with Him. To live in repentance. Therefore, exhort one another with these words. But while there is is warning, the main thrust of the passage is comfort. The main thrust is encouragement. That's what he wants us to walk away with. You see, there are so many questions that we can have about the return of Christ. There's, there's so many things that Paul, that he doesn't inform the Thessalonians about. And maybe we wish he could have kept going, explaining what the return of Christ would have been like. He doesn't speak about what happens to the godless in this moment. He does in a different passage, but not here. Or he doesn't tell them about how exactly it's going to work that Christ returns and he's going to be physically visible and everybody's going to see him. He doesn't answer some of those questions. But again, we have to remember, Paul informs insofar as we can be encouraged. Actually, I should say, Paul informs us to encourage us, to comfort us. He wants us. Not to sit there and say, well, we don't really know much about Christ's return and so... We'll just have to rest with that. Nor does he want us to be going down all the different rabbit trails trying to figure out exactly how all the details work. No, he wants to comfort us. You see, what Paul has given us is sufficient so that we can walk alongside our brother or our sister or our family who is mourning the passing of a loved one. 
He calls us to comfort and encourage one another with these words, to tell them about the beautiful unity that is coming when Christ returns, when all those in Christ will be united together with him. He calls us to tell them about the beautiful future that we have in store, where we will be with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will be with him forever, always. And so he says, comfort one another. Because it's when we, when we comfort each other with these truths, then there is real hope in the face of death. That we realize that death is not going to separate us forever, but rather we will all be united together, believers past and believers present. We will all be united together with our Savior Jesus Christ. And then, at that moment, we will always be with the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Let us now sing in response to the proclamation of the gospel, hymn 39, verses 1, 3, and 4. before God in thanksgiving prayer. Dear Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, we experience much loss, we experience pain, we experience separation. And Father, we know the feeling of having a relationship being severed because of death. And so, we praise you for the glorious future that awaits us. We look forward to the day when Christ returns in the clouds of heaven and when we will be united, reunited with all believers, those who have passed and those present, and we will meet our Savior and live with Him forever. Father, we look forward to that day when our faith will be sight, when we will be able to stand in the presence and no, lo no longer separated from sin or anything else, where we will live in joy 
in harmony, in community, basking in your presence and in your glory. Father, we long for that. Thank you for the comfort that you give us in our grief. Thank you that death is but a doorway. Thank you that we merely sleep because we will one day rise with our Savior. And Father, our heart goes out to those in our congregation who are still grieving the loss of a loved one. Lord, you know the sorrow, the pain that grips their hearts. We pray, Holy Father, that you would apply your word to them, comfort them in their affliction and with the glorious future that awaits. Please protect them from thoughts of despair and hopelessness, but instead fill them with, the presence, with your presence and also peace that surpasses all understanding. We think too, Father, of those who have buried a loved one who, have, who died without a living relationship with Christ. Lord, this grieves us deeply. It saddens us. Lord, we pray that you would please watch over them, that you please comfort them with your greatness. Help them to find solace in your sovereignty. And, and Lord, may this truth spur us on. May it fill us with a vision of the future that we would encourage one another to walk in unity with our Savior so that we may be comforted and so that we have that joy of life everlasting. And Father, we thank you that this is true, that we, when we believe in him, that this is the future that we have in store. And so we pray that we would live in the light of that truth and that we would walk together as a community of believers, spurring one another on for that glorious day. And Father, we also thank you that we can worship you as exactly that, a community of believers, both young and old. We've just witnessed the baptism of Catherine. Lord, it's such a powerful testimony of the way that you deal with your people. You covenant yourself, you make a relationship, not only with us, not only with the individual, but with, to them and to their children. And so, Father, we thank you that we can worship you as young and old. We thank you for the children in our midst. Lord Jesus, you said, let the children come to me. And so we ask that you would please bless our little children as they worship you with us. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work great faith in their hearts through the power of the preaching. For Lord, as you have said, to such belongs the kingdom. May they be to us adults a living picture of the childlike faith and trust that you have called us to. Father, please also be with uh, the teenagers in our midst. Father, we thank you for them. We thank you for the way that they are growing in their faith. We thank you for the questions that they are asking. And we, father, we, we pray, Father, that you would please protect them. We live in a world of much distraction and of much sin. And we live in a world that often looks so attractive. And Father, we know that these things lead to death. And so we pray that you would please protect our, our young adults, as they wrestle with life's questions, as they make their faith their own, as they appropriate what they have, have been given, as they make a response to their baptism, please bless them as they work through their struggles. And Father, may you be God to them as you have promised. You said that you would be their God and they, that they would be your people. And so walk with them. And Father, we thank you for that glorious truth, that those who are in Christ, that no one can snatch them from your hand. And so, Father, we commit them to you. Lord, please continue to bless us in our families and also in our church family. We thank you for our church family. Lord, for not all of us here have families that we can go to. 
Some of us live alone by ourselves. And so we thank you for the communion of saints, that we can all be a hand and a foot to one another, that our unity goes beyond just blood. But it is deeper than that, but it's based on the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in him. And so, Father, we pray that you'd also bless us as we enjoy a day of worship where we can worship as your people together. Father, may it be a foretaste of that glorious worship that we will enjoy in heaven when we are with Christ in all eternity. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You now have an opportunity also to give of your gifts. And the offering for this morning is requested for the South African needy churches. Uh, And as you give of your offering, remember the words of Philippians 4, verse 15 through 16. It says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And so this is one of the ways in which we can be in partnership, uh, a partnership of the gospel with other churches. And then after the offering... We'll sing from hymn 40, verse 1 and 4.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace, that the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I'll do that again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.